Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Before we get further into this episode, here at Inquiring Minds, we want to express our solidarity with Black lives, our anger at the injustices that have plagued Black people in this country for centuries. We want to acknowledge that we have not always been part of the solution, uh, and at times have been part of the problem, and that we aim to do better. The first step towards doing better is to talk about how systemic racism has affected the lives of people of color. My guest this week is Robert Rosencrantz. He's an MD-PhD student at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And since the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement several years ago, he has made it his mission to find out about the effects of systemic racism in medicine. He recently produced a thread on Twitter in which he called to action people who are affiliated with schools of medicine, their deans, their students, etc., to address the profound inequalities in the way that people of color are treated by the medical system. Robert Rosencrantz, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So I came across a Twitter feed, uh, or I should say a thread that you had written that really intrigued me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on the podcast, especially this week. You were essentially calling people who are at all involved with schools of medicine to action. Uh, in terms of trying to address some of the systemic racism that has been around in the medical field. Um, You know, right now, the majority of protests, the majority of actions are uh, concerning another branch uh, of civil servants, police officers, who also have a mission to serve and protect. And um, but physicians, you know, make an oath to do no harm. And yet there does seem to be a lot of evidence that there has been systemic racism within the medical field, especially in terms of how patients are treated. So can you tell me a little bit about your interest in this topic when you started sort of thinking about it and and delving more deeply into the research concerning this matter? Sure, absolutely. And thank you so much for kind of contextualizing why we're having this conversation now. I, I would like to just take a moment to say bluntly that I I stand for the inherent dignity 
and humanity of Black people. And that is a profound motivation for all of my interests in medicine, including this one. That's a, a core ethical precept, and it guides all of my thinking. And so I'm aware that that's actually a political statement. And this is a political domain. We Medicine is a political practice. Science is a political practice. Um, I don't view them as objective entities that exclusively describe the natural world in some um, one-to-one relationship. And so, you know, asking kind of where I got into interested in this idea, well, you know, I actually studied comparative literature and critical theory in college. And the central insight of critical theory is that um, all these identities that we perceive as being, or, or rather that the general lay public perceives as being inherent natural identities Um, gender, sexuality, race, are actually historically and contextually specific. And they're created both by power relations and to maintain power relations. So I see, on the one hand, a very rich tradition of understanding what people's identities are and how they came to be um, that's constantly being updated and deepened in the in the world of critical theory. And so that 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 process for me began like say 12, you know, 11 or 12 years ago when I was in college and was kind of shocked to enter medicine and see that they were basically using concepts of human diversity and variation that are, you know, effectively derived from the 18th century and kind of merged without great precision onto very modern and complex scientific techniques of molecular biology and genome sequencing. Can you be a little bit more specific about what it was that turned you on to the, this, this idea that a lot of the concepts uh, were based in such old views? Um, Was there, was it the way that, uh, you know, certain practices were taught? Was it, an anatomy class? Like where, where did you first start seeing these signs? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry. I kind of gave you this like really deep context for my own internal resistance to the ideas, but I didn't tell you what they were. Where did I hear them and encounter them? Um, Very early in medical school, I began to hear about the idea, and I mean this literally, of race as a poor proxy for genetics. That's a statement that I heard, the idea that race was in some way biology. And that kind of overarching concept became deepened uh, by a set of practices that we call race-based medicine, which is a way of understanding lab values for diagnostics, differing prevalences of diseases, um, and even the theoretical efficacy of a treatment as varying by someone's social category of race. And so, you know, there are a number of these, and I think that's what kind of caught your attention was how long my list was that I wrote on Twitter. A huge number of them have to do with hypertension. I've probably heard more myths about hypertension in Black people than anything else. There are true algorithms, the uh, JCN8 algorithm for treating hypertension actually has a step in it that says, if Black, if non-Black. 
and they list different medicines to give under those two categories. And I should d- define, excuse me, it's the Joint National Committee. That's the J, uh, JNC8 guidelines for hypertension uh, treatment. So that's one example where you can literally see algorithmically, we, we decide that people are fundamentally different and require different medicines to maintain health in the context of the same condition, hypertension. Um, there are certainly other ones. Yeah, let's let's talk about this for a minute. But I just want to I want to come back a little bit to this idea where for you it was a it was surprising that race was being used as a kind of rough proxy for genetics. I think for a lot of people who are not as enlightened as you are, who don't have that same uh, uh, education, that isn't that 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 still is 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 how what a lot I think a lot of people believe that you can you know, ultimately, you can distinguish someone's race on the basis of some biological marker. Uh, And I'd like you to sort of, you know, just tell us how that's not true. Sure, absolutely. And I'm aware there's certainly a lay understanding of of race that purports it to be based in some biology. And I want to give my citations here. I'm a good MD, PhD student. And also I'm a white person who's benefited tremendously from the work that black people have done to resist this. So Naomi Zak wrote a wonderful book uh, on the philosophy of science and race. It's very brief. It's probably only 120 pages that delves into all the ways that this lay conception of uh, race as biology doesn't work. So let's just kind of walk through a little bit of those, those ideas uh, I'm going to start with the way I define race, and I think it's you know critical to establish our vocabulary early on. I see race as a historical and legal category that's used to justify the differential distribution of power, right? That's what I kind of alluded to earlier. That's the fundamental insight of critical theory. There's another definition we can use, which is the one we call all work with as we walk through the street and into a grocery store and into a classroom. And that would be the socially assigned groupings of human beings based on some diverse but flexible array of phenotypes, kind of skin shade, hair texture, eye, nose shape. But this itself is even a weak definition. Every phenotype varies continuously, right? There are no discrete demarcations. Like we can't actually find one skin tone that can cleanly delineate every person we socially identify as black from every person we socially identify as white. And we can, we can just think of examples. Steph Curry, you know, I don't watch basketball, but even I know who he is. It's a very light-skinned black man. But we know he's black on some level. So, so it's not actually based on the phenotype, you know, that we see of skin shade. We know race is not ancestral because, let's take another famous person, Barack Obama has a white mother and a black father. But he's not white. No one would put him in their study if they wanted to sequence his genetic information and categorize him as white. We, we know that intuitively, and that's the one drop rule. And we also know that it's not genetics, right? People are, and that's the one you specifically asked, and so I do want to address it. People will often refer to some trait, right, like sickle cell disease or Tay-Sachs that seems to be concentrated in one grouping of human beings and not observed as much in others, And isn't that evidence that there's some biological basis to these social categories that we use? But the perspective of people who criticize race-based medicine is not that there's no such thing as human variation or that social groupings don't have some differences between them. The point is that there is no genetic 
allele that is found within all members of one racial group and no members of any other. That's what people are looking for is some single biological factor that absolutely maps to our social groupings of race. We can't find one. Even the most strong proponents of race-based medicine don't believe in that. They don't think that every person who's black has a sickle cell allele. They don't think that every person who's an Ashkenazi Jew has a Tay-Sachs allele. So even they acknowledge that race is at best a poor proxy for genetics. And if you accept that criticism, then what you end up asking is, what is the benefit of measuring something and then associating it to race as opposed to just measuring it, right? Can't we just look for the allele itself? If there's some allele of concern or interest to us, if we can't tell for sure that someone's got it based on how they look, then what's the point of measuring that association at all? I mean, some of the things that you're you're describing here too apply, you know, in some, in my opinion, almost just as easily to gender identity uh, as you know. There's no, there's there's no chromosome, there's no allele that every person who identifies as female, and you know, even if you decide that you are going to do the identifying for them, I mean, you can't pick. It's not external genitalia. It's not internal genitalia. It's not chromosomes. It's not you know. It's not brain differences. Even though overall there might be. If you look at populations, you know, women are going to be of lower height than men. Uh, and so there are going to be some parts of the brain that are also going to fall in these kinds of distributions. Um, but one of my favorite papers uh, comes out of this lab in Israel where they, they talk about these gender differences in the brain as a mosaic. Like there's no person who checks all the behavioral boxes like you know, doesn't do anything that would traditionally be considered masculine, like fishing or golfing. Uh, and, you know, does only things that we would consider to be feminine, like knitting and baking. Um, nobody checks all the behavioral boxes and nobody checks all the neural differences boxes. Um, instead, you have a mosaic where you have, you know, people have different combinations uh, within, you know, these, these, these different, uh, these differences. Is that a, a way to think about uh, some of these, you know, the, the, this racial construct when it comes to some of these biomarkers? Yeah, I find it to be very helpful. And let me just say, as an avid knitter and baker, I uh, couldn't agree more <laughs> with what you just said. I, I do find that helpful. In general, I don't think there's an analogy for race. I think race is the central organizing feature of American life. But I think that what you're describing is helpful, right, that because what you're pointing out is that there's some context and some history behind these groupings that we perceive to be eternal, natural, biological, right? So, for example, you can travel to Japan in the uh, 17th century and find a third gender, right, that that's not neither neither man nor woman. It was a temporary social status that young men occupied in their late teens and early 20s. And of course, you can also see that in many indigenous cultures, right? There's a concept in indigenous cultures in, in Mexico of, uh, and I, I hate to butcher the word, but I believe it's pronounced moishes. And so that's another kind of, you see this kind of idea of third gender, third spirit, right? That there are mixtures, that these, that these things we perceive to be inherent, fixed, natural, biological entities are actually socially and culturally specific. And, and let's really drill down into that specifically for, for race, because that's where my journey kind of began, is 
about 10 years ago, I picked up a book on the history of the Belgian Congo. And it was the single most disturbing book I have ever read to this day. And through that emotional experience I had reading it, I was able to firmly understand for the first time that whiteness is actually a legal category that permitted theft, the hoarding of resources and power. And if that was true about whiteness, it had to also be true about blackness. And so that's kind of what I reflect back to is this core definition, right, that that racial groupings are socio-legal constructs that have enabled differential distributions of power. We see that. That literally happened. The history of colonialism, the history of slavery was facilitated by the creation of the idea of inherent, purely different groups. That was a historical event. We've always acknowledged the idea that there's human variation, right? You can find that reading ancient Greek philosophers. That's No one's ever disputing that point. But the notion that there were pure and inherent races that differed biologically, that was actually a historical event that occurred in the last 500 years. Obviously, it can't be anchored to some deep evolutionary process going back pre-politically, pre-historically 80,000, 100,000 years. We know when it happened by studying history. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, getting back to the question that I interrupted your answer on <laughs> to sort of put this context uh, in place. The the ways in which uh, people who are Black um, have been kind of mistreated or or have, you know, the, the, the sort of evidence of racism within medical practice uh, that caught your eye. I can tell you one that I found really horrendous and uh, you know, just I don't even know what the word, but it was it was very poignant to me was the notion that people who uh, have darker skin somehow feel pain differently. Uh, and so there's this history of mismanagement of pain among people of color. Um, you know, you, you, you hear people who have been taught in medical school that a person who has, you know, uh, more pigmented skin has thicker skin. And so, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have to worry so much about when you're t- drawing their blood that it's not as painful, or, you know, or, um, or the under um, prescribing of pain medication, whether it's during labor, uh, when, a, you know, for pregnant women or in any other con- situation, uh, there's there's been a history of, of chronically under prescribed pain medications uh, among people of color. Can you are those two? I mean, I, I'm sure the pain is familiar to you. You know, is that does that resonate? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then maybe we can talk about some other um, I mean, one of the things I loved about your Twitter thread, sorry, now I'm just like continuing to make this an incredibly long question, <laughs> uh, was just the variety that you, that you went through, you know, kind of um, systematically different, uh, you know, different medical fields and disciplines and sort of laid out how racism has been a part of every one of them. Let's start with pain. Okay, sure. So yeah, we know for a long time that there are inequities in pain management that Doctors are about twice as likely not to prescribe any pain medication for a long bone fracture to a Black or a Latinx individual than to a white individual, which is kind of a, an extraordinary fact and just a, a deeply upsetting one to, to sit with for a moment. Even now, it's kind of, as I say, the words just shocking me, the brutality of it. <laughs> 
And, and, it's, and it's the banality of the brutality, right? So, I mean, pain disparities are actually very complex. There's some evidence that people also request less pain medication and that this may map onto uh, different cultural ideas about uh, the importance of tolerating pain uh, or the expectation perhaps that people will receive what they ask for. And so I guess for me, you know, pain management is is cruel and unfathomable that there could be a disparity there. A lot of it's anchored in kind of war on drugs attitude uh, around drug seeking in, in black people and the notion that they're inherently untrustworthy or criminal in some sense. But, you know, the category of racism in medicine that I really focus most on, and it's the one that I find the most remarkable and strange, are, are these truly structural forms of racism. Uh, you know, an excellent definition of structural racism might be a form of racism or rather a practice that produces inequitable outcomes, even in the absence of human intervention. And I don't know if you noticed that in my uh, Twitter thread, but that there are literal algorithmic approaches to treatment that systematically result in worse care for Black people. So the first one on my list is the estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is a, a measure of kidney function. And in the late 1990s, an equation was developed to assess this parameter, which is uh, basically the most important variable in that is uh, a metabolite in our blood called creatinine, uh, which is produced by muscle during the routine breakdown. So we're always putting it out into our blood from muscle, and our kidneys are always getting rid of it for us. If our kidneys stop working so well, then creatinine starts accumulating in our blood. And in the 90s, uh, there was an interest in getting a quantitation on that. How, if you have some level of creatinine in your blood, can you actually map that directly to the function of the kidney? And the researchers that did that used a complex equation and, and added race as a term in it. They never justified why they did that. This is just a common practice in medicine. And then they found that the equation was basically mathematically fit the data better when they included that term. And it was kind of on the back end interpreted to reflect that Black people just inherently have more muscle mass. So now we're back to this idea about Black people being fundamentally biologically different in some way, not a social category, but an inherent and biologically different category. And that's not a neutral decision because these equations determine when someone gets referred to specialty care from primary care. They determine when someone becomes eligible for a kidney transplant. They could determine treatment plans, the prescriptions for other drugs based on how well your kidney is going to be able to process them. And what's so shocking about this example in particular, and there are a couple of others I'd love to drill into, is that it's done by a computer. Doctors don't even have to choose anymore to think about a patient's race here. It's automatically computed in our medical records. So when you get a plasma creatinine for a patient, the system reads the patient's race, feeds that into a separate equation based on what race it is, and then gives a different output. That's truly systemic racism. It's being done by a computer. It's erasing all that critical thinking that we want doctors to do and asking them to ignore, really. It's not including race, it's ignoring it, in my opinion, 
ignoring all these rich contextual factors that are racialized in our society, our racial inequalities, and converting them instead into this very simplistic understanding of a of a plasma value based off of nothing more than an assumption, which is commonly violated, right? Not every black person has more muscle mass than every white person. And more to the point, could be measured by a physician. A physician could actually take a measurement of a patient's muscle mass. They could estimate it directly in some way and use that as the parameter. Another truly uh, shocking one is spirometry, the, the measure of lung volumes. Basically, we have the exact same situation in spirometry as we have in the estimation of kidney function. There is a built-in race correction factor that works under the assumption that every non-white race has every individual who is identified as a member of a non-white race has an intrinsically lower lung volume. About 12% for black people is the assumption. And I want to make sure also to speak to the experts who have really opened my eyes here. So Lundy Braun is a um, historian at and a professor of uh, African studies at Brown University who wrote a wonderful book on the spirometer. Dorothy Roberts has uh, written and spoken extensively about race-based medicine as a, as a domain, as an entire field. And then I, I also want to acknowledge the remarkable work of, uh, of a collection of activist doctors, among them Vanessa Grubbs at UCSF, who specifically have worked to eliminate race-based corrections in EGFR in the um, measure of kidney function because their primary effect is to delay Black patients' access to specialty care and transplants for kidney disease. So I just think it's very important for me to acknowledge, you know, that I, I'm kind of coming from academic work performed almost entirely by, by Black women, and that they opened my eyes to what was truly wrong in this practice and, and allowed me to speak uh, on a deeper level regarding it. Yeah, I want to add another voice to that, which is Nadine Burke-Harris, who writes about um, adverse childhood experiences and, and you know, uh, sort of how those affect individuals. And, and she has done wonderful work, too, sort of describing some of the ways in which kids of color are treated by pediatricians in ways that, you know, don't reflect uh, sort of what, what's actually going on. I think that's such a wonderful point you just made as a a neuroscientist. Um, I'm deeply interested in the biology of stress and view it as a, a central mechanistic pathway in, in health inequity. And I did also want to touch on the specific example you gave of ACEs, adverse childhood events in pediatrics. One of the areas of race-based medicine I had never heard of, actually, and I've heard of a lot of them because I paid very careful attention to this topic, was Differential diagnostic standards for UTIs in infants. That was one that just absolutely floored me. Someone responded to my thread and said, yeah, actually being white is considered a risk factor for having a UTI as an infant. And, you know, uh, another one that was really shocking and bizarre to me is that we have a different age threshold for the diagnosis of early puberty in black girls versus white girls. And that's based on breast development. So we basically tolerate breast development earlier in black girls and are willing to say, no, that's not pathological. Now, look, someone could say that may be beneficial. You know, excess intervention is 
sometimes as bad as inadequate intervention. But I cannot hear that we accept earlier puberty in Black girls than white girls without thinking about the fact that we know and have known that Black girls are denied their childhood. They're viewed as older. They're viewed as, and they're treated differently as a function of that social perception. They're fed into school to prison pipelines and they lose this precious part of their life, their childhood. So I don't, I can't experience race-based medicine as separate from social contexts that are unequal. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So we uh, talked about the spirometer data. Are there any more uh, kind of examples like that that you want to highlight uh, that that people should be aware of in terms of these, you know, the race-based medicine and, and where it's falling short? Oh, yes. Um, one that's very important in particular is the case of hydralazine nitrate. So that uh, it's also called Bidil. Uh, that's the generic name. And it's never had much commercial success, but it's extremely important. Uh, and the work that was done on it that really educated me was uh, by a law professor named Jonathan Kahn, uh, who wrote a book called Race and Race in a Bottle. And hydralazine nitrate is a fascinating case because it was the very first race-specific indication that the FDA ever gave, which is to say the FDA lent the imprimatur of the federal government to the idea that there are biologically distinct races, and this drug could only work could only be prescribed in black people. It's a, it's a drug for heart failure, I should say. So this is a wow. fascinating thing to me. You know, it's never, it had never happened before. And the things that are so shocking and bizarre about it are, are very illustrative of the general sets of errors that people make when they engage in race-based medicine. This was two generic drugs that were put together in a compound as a treatment for heart failure in the early 1990s, which was when, you know, the pharmacology of heart failure was really exploding and we were getting good therapeutic options for the first time. And there were a series of studies performed, funded through the Veterans Administration. They were all in both black and white people. They were general population. And this company took these two generic drugs, put them together as a compound, began testing it and asked for a fresh patent. And the FDA declined it. Well, they then reanalyzed the data from one of the original studies and purported to find a race-specific effect. These studies weren't statistically powered or designed to test that effect. They weren't randomly sampled to represent the two populations that, you know, 
that they were later claiming this drug worked differentially in. And the FDA took that claim and said, okay, well, we want you to test it further. And this is where it gets really weird. The FDA only requested that the additional clinical trial be performed in Black people. So the very first race-specific indication the FDA ever issued was based on a clinical trial performed only in Black people. They say it only works in Black people, but they never actually compared Black people and white people. I mean, yeah, it's it's shocking. You'd think that so many people along that uh, chain would have known better. Um, But I want to ask you a question. If they had, in fact, uh, sort of randomly, I mean, they can't, you know, they, I guess they can't really randomly, it did a, you know, randomized placebo controlled trial. And only people who identified as black seemed to do better on the drug. And maybe even those who identified as white had worse outcomes. And, you know, maybe even something, you know, like they had a higher death rate or something like that. What would you think then? I mean, would you feel then that it would be appropriate for that drug to be prescribed only to people who identify themselves as black? So let's actually deal in um, in specifics and not in analogies, because you've, you've uh, because I think the situation you've just described is actually impossible. But I, which is to say, I, I we have not yet found a drug that only works in people of one identified race and does something bad in others. And okay. let me let me suggest to you the very very profound and yet simple reason that is, all of our drugs are tested in animals first. It is unfathomable to imagine that a drug that works upon a biological mechanism that is conserved from mice to human beings or fruit flies to mice to human beings or C. elegans to fruit flies to mice to human beings would not work in a subcategory of human beings universally. I mean, really dwell on how unbelievably odd race-based medicine becomes when you actually contextualize the whole drug development pipeline in that way, how bizarre the claims really are. Point taken. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think that's really important to think about that if, you know, because I can hear in my head, you know, an argument what somebody would make, well, but what if, you know, checking that box does change the outcome on, you know, and, and as you as you rightly say, you know, that calls into question the whole premise of, uh, of how we develop drugs, of how we develop treatments. But I do want to address your question. You want to know what someone who believes the things I do does when someone publishes a paper that says there's a difference between Black people and white people on X, Y, and Z parameter. So let's kind of walk through the general set of errors that that are present in those kinds of papers. One of them is this assumption of homogeneity. So that approach, as I kind of alluded to before, really depends on the assumption that there's some frequency distribution, right? We can imagine two bell curves, one for white people, one for black people, and they're just overlapping at their tails. Can we picture that? Just two kind of mountains sitting side by side. And so what people who engage in that research are kind of imagining is that there are large between group differences and small within group differences. So we're picturing two very, very steep mountains, you know, uh, low standard deviations and high differences between the means. The only problem is that we never find that. What we find 
almost universally is tremendous within-group variation and relatively small between-group variation. So we actually have two rather flat hills that are mostly overlapping. But what gets reported and discussed is, my goodness, Black people on average have a 20% higher BNP level, or in that case, that was actually a paper that was published, it was like 40% lower uh, brain natriuretic peptide level than white people. Okay, what's the standard deviation, right? Because you can have a difference, an average difference of that magnitude, but the distribution of error around it might make it such that you could never actually predict something about someone from one of those two groups without having to measure it. And again, that's the whole project here is to find some parameter that differs so substantially that you never have to look again. Ah, we know every black person's 40% less BNP than every white person. No, we can't find those kinds of differences because there's too too much population variation. Speaking on genetic terms, for example, we know and have known for a long time that there is, although humans are in general, uh, do not differ genetically very much from each other at all, there's far more genetic variation within Africa than similarity. It's the most genetically heterogeneous site on Earth. I mean, it's a, it's a massive continent, so we should expect that. And that kind of dooms the whole project once you understand quantitatively that we have never observed the kinds of frequency distributions that people imagine exist. They think that we yeah. have these two big differences, but we have small differences with great variation. You know, and I think that this is one of the dangers now as medicine does become more uh, touched by artificial intelligence and the use of algorithms is that we think, well, you know, the algorithm is going to do the job for us. But as we've already talked about, you know, as uh, a lot of people have talked about in, in, you know, in the wider sphere, AI algorithmic based medicine still retains bias. And so it's not it's not a solution and it's and it's not helpful if if the whole system is built on on these um assumptions. Oh, certainly. Uh, Absolutely. And and that could apply very much to what's left out as what's put in, right? You could say we have an assumption, we we have a belief that this parameter differs so substantially between these two groups that it doesn't even need to be included in an algorithm, right? And we could miss some some important source of variation within an individual, uh, within within groups, uh, simply because we believe it to be so inherently different. So I think it's really important um, for us to discuss what doesn't make it into these studies and the things they don't consider, the kind of negative space of their research, right? Who makes it into the study and how similar are they to others in different regions with different cultural practices or environmental conditions that happen to fall into the same racial group, right? By virtue of this kind of shared phenotypic and legal classification scheme, right? So the United States is a vast varied country. And so are the kinds of discrimination that people experience, the the kinds of differences in environments. The lab values that you might find, which could be determined by some environmental exposure of, say, a group of Black people living in Seattle, are not necessarily the same kinds of changes that you might observe from people living, for example, under the environmentally racist heavy industry of North Birmingham. But we could find some purported natural inherent difference that we never uh, never asked the environmental context of, publish that paper, and then extrapolate it to diverse groups of Black individuals across the United States. And of course, the same thing goes for white people. We don't inhabit the same environment everywhere, 
But by failing to acknowledge that our environments are on average racist and, and failing to measure that, we lose the ability to make those kinds of insights and we falsely generalize. So that's a, a major critical error that we observe in, in race-based medicine and in that class of um, studies. You know, a skeptical person might say, can't you get around that by simply measuring random nationally representative samples from, you know, 10 or 12 different cities in the United States? And the hope there is that we can kind of get beyond racist environments and say, well, this is some average property of black people or average property of white people that is not environmentally specific in the way that I just described, right? Not every black person is living under the threat of environmental racism. They're not all living in poverty. There's tremendous heterogeneity within groups, right? In terms of experience and environment. The issue that we face though, is that we know many, many, many racist harms and benefits are distributed inequitably on average. And so this idea that we can kind of remove the effect of the environment and get down to that true inherent difference that people who practice race-based medicine believe exists is simply a fantasy. We are on average an inequitable nation. We can't remove that effect. It's present everywhere in differing ways and in differing extents. But that pretty much dooms the whole project to find inherent differences that are not socially and historically and contextually specific. So I know a lot of our listeners are physicians or they are medical students, uh, recent graduates. Uh, what advice could you give them uh, that they could do to sort of help change or overturn some of these uh, misconceptions? Kind of give us a, an action list of, of things that you think that uh, our listeners could do to help the situation. I think the most important thing is to fully acknowledge the extent of racist harms that are present in our society, their depth and their variety, and additionally, the extent of racist benefits that there are. The, the fact that white people on average have more access to health care, are overall more insured, work jobs that, for example, allow them to stay at home in a global pandemic. And so I don't believe that criticizing race-based medicine means don't conceptualize race, I think that we need to think about it much, much more deeply than we're trained to think about it ever before. And so one kind of concrete suggestion that I made in that Twitter thread and others have made it um, before me is the creation of an ICD-10 code, a diagnostic code for the experiences of chronic racism. Now, a critic of that idea might say, These codes are built for profit-based systems, and isn't that just tying us back into some some algorithmic approach to patient care that is really based on what insurance companies want? And that's a very valid criticism. But what I imagine for the idea of of this code is that it acts kind of like a stumbling stone. Have, Have you ever heard of that artistic installation that's present in various German cities, the the Stolperstein? No. These are basically blocks that are embedded in the ground. There's 70,000 of them in about 1,200 cities in Germany. And what they mark are the very specific places 
that a certain Jewish family was taken, the day that they were taken and where they were taken to is engraved by hand into them. And they're set into the ground just a little bit at an elevation so that your foot could catch them and you could stop and remember a crime was committed here. Someone's life was harmed by a legal governmental institution by design. That's an idea, a fantasy I have about what this kind of ICD-10 code for experiences of chronic racism might be for a physician. Stop and think. Race isn't biology. It's not genetics. It's not ancestry. It's not geography. It's something that our government did to our fellow human beings that we are doing to our fellow human beings. A harm that's actively being perpetrated and a harm that we're not engaging in reparations for. And it reminds us to ask patients about their experiences, about the way that their life is lived, as opposed to reducing them to some facile and ridiculous assumption, like, for example, that they inherently have more muscle mass. It forces us to see them in their entirety as a person who has suffered and persevered under a constant threat under a country that depended on them but would not care for them, that took their wealth and would not repay it, and then would say, in the end, there's something fundamentally wrong with you anyway. That's why Black people are more vulnerable to COVID-19, some genetic problem. We won't ever find it or even search for it. Yeah. Well, Robert, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. How can our listeners find you? Uh, I have a Twitter. It's rf. Rosencrans, that's R-O-S-E-N-C-R-A-N-S. There are a tremendous number of wonderful resources. I've alluded to some of them before. Dorothy Roberts, Lindy Braun, Jonathan Kahn, and an entire institute that's working to end this process called the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine. And that's a collaboration between Berkeley and UCSF uh, founded by medical students. And so I just want to kind of draw attention to the tremendous debt that I owe to all of these individuals and institutions that are helping us change the way medicine is practiced and letting us affirm the complete humanity, equality, and dignity of all Black people. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Carl Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. I will see you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.